This is a Diet of Brussels. Welcome to yet another New Year of Brexit. I think this is our eighth calendar year in which this podcast has been running. And to be honest, a lot of things look just like they used to. And I know this has been a bit of a leitmotif of recent years, but it's worth reflecting on this as we've had another Christmas New Year period of news that turns out to be, well, not so much news. Case one in this were comments from the new, or indeed returning, uh, Tishuk uh, Leo Varadka, who uh, made comments uh, over the New Year weekend about mistakes being made on all sides in the way that the Northern Ireland Protocol was negotiated, and that you know perhaps the treaty was, and I quote, a little bit too strict. Now, this was seized upon by those hardy individuals who don't know when to take a break uh, during a holiday period as a sign of progress. Remember that over the last six or seven months, in the period since Boris Johnson left number 10, first under Liz Truss and then under Rishi Sunak, we've had warmer rhetoric. We've had repeated kind of briefings from the British side about the possibility of making progress, opportunities being there for the taking. But this is the the first time uh, that you've seen something that reciprocates that in something more than just, well, yes, I'm sure we can work something out. And, you know, here in terms of uh, moving things forward, having the uh, Irish government on side is certainly something that is an essential part of it. It's hard to imagine, given all that's happened over the past uh, few years, that uh, the Commission, even though they are the lead negotiators, would make any move on the protocol without uh, the approval of Dublin. So in terms of looking like an opportunity of making 2023 uh, a time at which fences could be mended and progress could be made, Varadkar's comments were seen uh, in very favourable light. That said, uh, we then uh, had the following day uh, some clarifications from the Commission to the effect that the protocol was the protocol, that the text was the text, and that implementation was implementation. So a much firmer line in all of that. And that really, if you like, reflects the problem that's going on here. It's not that Varadka and the Commission are talking in different uh, ways, uh, but rather they're highlighting different aspects of the same thing. The EU's long had a view that it's possible to make implementation work better if there is a good basis of trust that allows for more of the flexibilities of the system to be exploited. And notwithstanding uh, Varadkar's view that being a bit too strict uh, might have caused some problems, that is something that would be pursued without uh, a need for a renegotiation of the protocol in the way that many in London have talked about. 
And certainly, if you look at Veradica's comments, which were quite extensive, it should be said, it's not just a, a one-off comment, it's quite a chunk of text that he's uh, produced in his uh, statements. Nowhere does he talk about renegotiation. So uh, whilst uh, the British side may have seen this as a positive step forward, uh, those who are following things more closely would have seen it simply as a restatement of the situation that we had before Christmas. Likewise, we might look at the statements from Richard Tice, the leader of Reform UK, formerly the Brexit Party, sort of formerly uh, UKIP, uh, in which he talks about wanting to put candidates up at the next general election in all the seats that are contested by the Tories. Now, you'll remember that Reform, its immediate predecessor of the Brexit Party, very much focused on the Brexit issue. So Nigel Farage, as party leader, really trying to sell the message that this was the only party that could ensure a proper Brexit, that uh, none of the backsliding that they feared from uh, people like Theresa May or even Boris Johnson would take place. So you might say, well, here we go again. But what's striking is that if you look at the Reform Party's uh, uh, websites, the statements that they have, if you look at their priorities for the uh, UK to make Britain great, uh, they are reforming our economy, reforming our public sector, reforming our energy strategy, and reforming our institutions. And as I scroll up and down the page, hmm, I don't actually see anything that is directly related to Brexit as such. There's a kind of emphatic statement about we need to do Brexit properly. But there's nothing here which really ties those plans to... Uh, the relationship with the EU. No mention here of the uh, protocol or of the two treaties, the withdrawal agreement or the trade and cooperation agreement, which have been so central to the party's uh, position before. So if you like, this is a re-encapsulation of protest that uh, had been so successful for UKIP and then uh, to a less extent for the Brexit party, that uh, people like Nigel Farage had been very adept at creating, of saying, well, here's a problem, Europe, uh, the EU, which uh, we can do something about and which will transform what we do. And again, what reform are trying to do here is tie together the various discontents that people feel about public services, about the economy, about uh, energy, uh, all of these ideas bundled together as a, a one-stop shop for common sense politics, if you like, a kind of classic populist uh, strategy. Now, whether that strategy is one that can work, I think is very much open for debate. And certainly we have debates amongst uh, our public uh, opinion colleagues about how much support there is for reform. On the one hand, uh, there isn't the same single compelling uh, argument that was able to be made about the EU in earlier years, where you could say, well, 
the EU is the root of many of these problems and that voting to leave is a pathway to doing that. At the same time, it's clear that there is a lot of unhappiness with the current government and we can't expect all of it, even if much of it, has gone to Labour. So I think we have to take this with a degree of caution at this stage. But at the same time, the way in which political debate has moved away from European policy in the narrow sense is quite striking. All of this then really brings us back to this question and problem of government policy as a whole. On the day that I'm recording this, the 4th of January, we've had Rishi Sunak making his vision-heavy uh, policy statements uh, in uh, a speech where he's made his five promises, uh, which are there to, and I quote, build a better future for our children and grandchildren. So thinking bigger term, bigger issues. So issues around inflation, about the economy, about national debts, waiting lists, and finally about uh, stopping small boats. Now, in terms of ways to get to do that, uh, I think that still remains to be fleshed out. His speech didn't provide a comprehensive package of uh, ideas. I think the one that many of you will have heard of is making maths education compulsory to the age of 18. This needs to be understood in the context of Sunak's uh, difficult position in the run-up to the next general election, that uh, he needs to show that the Conservative government, which has been in power now for uh, coming up for 12 years, still has a big vision a sense of what it's trying to do in a way that tries to avoid uh, providing uh, ammunition to opposition parties who say, if it's such a great idea, why didn't you do it before? But also providing some material metrics against which they might be uh, judged by voters who might then be able to see progress. And what's telling already from the initial uh, economic response to this is that the three uh, issues around the economy, on inflation, on growth, on national debt, these are all things which look eminently uh, possible uh, and indeed are likely to be happening anyway, which makes a, a problem around how much you actually can deliver uh, something in short order and demonstrate that it belongs to you. Tellingly though, those targets and those promises do not contain anything which relates directly to European policy. So nothing about the protocol, nothing about trade with uh, the EU, with trying to unblock the various kind of issues. And I think even in the kind of the place that's potentially closest on trying to stop small boats, uh, that is not something that necessarily requires a UK-EU relationship to be developed, but much more could be done in relation to bilateral relations with France and the other uh, English Channel uh, literal states. In terms of how that reflects Sunak's kind of politics and policies, I think we can see that that again is quite a consistent position. Through the autumn, very little was said by him 
or particularly by ministers, about European policy. We continue in a period of some drift in relation to the legislation on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And we now see over the new year that there is a bit more uh, action from the House of Lords about potentially uh, trying to slow down or stop the uh, passage of the retained EU law bill, which is the other big issue that will be coming through this year. With the government that is stepping back from things like uh, Channel 4 privatisation, from other areas of uh, policy, how could we phrase it, innovation in the late Johnson uh, brief truss uh, period, then you could start to wonder whether there's scope here for Sunak to try and uh, rein in European policy. The nothing's happened so far, though, I think tells us that that looks uh, less and less likely as time goes by that uh, the uh, reverberations from policy U-turns so far have been pretty limited, probably because they've not been so central to backbenchers' ideas or to factions within the parties. So European policy, as much as it's not so much discussed, remains, I think, still something that's sufficiently sensitive for uh, number 10 to be thinking this might not be worth uh, the fight at this stage. The problem remains, though, clearly, that in the face of all of these issues and tensions, that stasis, uh, doing nothing, is less and less viable as a strategy. The passage of the two bills in Parliament the need to find resolutions for Northern Ireland ahead of the uh, Easter deadline for the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. All of these things push us towards situations where there will be more and more need to find some kind of active solution rather than a passive uh, accommodation. So perhaps the message we can take into 2022 is that whilst everything has seemingly stayed the same, the likelihood that things will have to change or be changed is growing with each passing month. So I think within the next three to six months, we're going to find that there's going to be some point of raised tension domestically within British politics and potentially in the relationship with Brussels and with Dublin about how these things work out. However, we still remain away from that, possibly because we're groggy from the uh, port-infused Stilton and that extra turkey leg that we really shouldn't have had. However, once we've got through all of that and we're back into full working order, I will be back with another episode and hopefully we'll have something actually new to talk about. Until then, have a very happy new year.